This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 287th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast, which is brought to you by Lifetime. Lifetime's groundbreaking documentary series, Surviving R. Kelly, captivated audiences and sparked global conversation. For the first time ever, survivors and people from R. Kelly's inner circle shared their full story. Lifetime thanks the survivors for coming forward. Surviving R. Kelly, for your Emmy consideration. I'm the host of Awards Chatter, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a strikingly beautiful and enormously talented actress best known for her work on TV. Over the past 20 years, she has appeared on series such as ABC's I'm With Her, NBC's Whitney, and TNT's Franklin and Bash. But she is best known and primed to land her first Emmy nomination for her portrayal of Kim Wexler, a lawyer who has a complicated relationship with Bob Odenkirk's Jimmy McGill, a.k.a. Saul Goodman, on AMC's Breaking Bad prequel, Better Call Saul, Ray Seahorn. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 47-year-old and I discussed her evolution from a character actress to a leading lady with a character actress's approach, what she learned from the various short-lived TV series that preceded Better Call Saul, how she landed the part of Kim on that Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould drama series and came to play the character the way she does, never better than on its most recently aired season, its fourth, what she suspects the future holds for Kim, who, unlike Jimmy, Mike, or several other Better Call Saul characters, is never seen or referenced on Breaking Bad, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Ray, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you. We always begin with just a few basics on this podcast. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Oh, interesting. Okay, Norfolk, Virginia. That was not the question I was expecting for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) And I have listened to your podcast. (laughs) Norfolk, Virginia, and my mom did many, many jobs with the government. Norfolk's a big naval base, and we moved around a lot with my mom working um, on several bases in different capacities. But my dad, we were civilian, but my dad was an NIS agent for counterintelligence stuff. So we moved for that reason. So NIS, National Intelligence, what's that? National Naval Intelligence. Intelligence. And I think that's changed to, someone out there will correct me, I'm sure. I want to say the acronym now stands for Naval Investigative. Oh, okay. But um, but at the time it was intelligence. So you're moving around throughout your childhood. How do you think that affects a kid? I think you learn to adapt pretty quickly. I'm sure there's 
all sorts of studies that having to change schools and change friends and all of that that often. I didn't move every three years like many people that have to move for the government do. We moved every three years for a while, and then it's and then we came back to Virginia Beach, and then we're there for a long time. But that being said, I would guess that the pros and cons probably end up being a wash. Yeah. As far as like, if you stayed in one school in one town, K through 12, there's got to be pros and cons to that. And likewise, moving around. Yeah, you learn how to adapt. And um, it's very possible that it's part of what I do for a living, yeah. that ability to just figure out how to read a room and blend what's your cog in the wheel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, blend in or stand out, right. depending on the circumstance. Right. Yeah. So... People might assume because of your profession that you were one of these, you know, theater kids that knew from as far back as you can remember that this is what you wanted to do. <laughs> My sense from prepping for this is that was not the case. It was sort of a, a different form of the arts. So what was that? Yes, I, I did fine arts for a long time. I still do it just for myself, but I don't do it for a living or try to do it for a living anymore. It was sort of the family thing, right? Yeah, my father, my mother and father are both my father was, he's passed away, um, and my mother still is. They're fantastic storytellers and very, very funny people and very smart people. So that was always going on in the house, that kind of performance, plus being from the South. My mom, Marilyn, my dad, Tennessee, like Southerners on a porch can do some good storytelling. Mm-hmm, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, but in addition to that, yes, my father also painted and drew charcoal drawings a lot that he learned from his mother, my grandmother, and as far back as I can remember, both my sister and I were sort of given that, taught that, and encouraged to do that, drawing and sketching as a way to self-soothe. It was very much something that you did alone and didn't need an audience for, and that's a great thing. And it turns out to still be a great thing with with my current profession to just, um, I think, to have the ability, whatever it is that somebody wants to do as a hobby to ha- to have the ability to self-soothe and to process things alone without a need for a committee's approval <laughs> or to be overstimulated. I mean, it is stimulating doing yeah, art, yeah. but it's meditative. Yeah, it's yeah. very meditative. The hand-eye coordination. Um, and I still am attracted to when I'm trying to learn lines and then when I'm really trying to Sometimes I refer to it as like cr- cracking a scene. It's mm-hmm. the it's the math of the scene, and I can't. There's a million ways to play it, but if I can't find my way in yet, I'll go over and over it. And I tend to gravitate towards doing activities that are very methodic hand-eye coordination when I'm trying to figure it out. Um, yeah. Well, so all mm-hmm. the way through high school, then we're talking no acting classes, no school plays, none of the stuff that people no. might assume. No. So. Now you go off to George Mason University. What happened there that changed that? I was doing a BA in fine arts there, and you had to take another elective that's not (laughs) what your major is. And I wanted to... uh, I secretly... I was obsessed with television and film and um, particularly older stuff because when I was growing up, Nick at Night was not children's programming at all it was all black and white older television shows really? oh yeah i thought i thought b arthur hung the moon as far as i was <laughs> concerned i was obsessed with maud and anything with madeline Kahn in it watching older saturday night lives uh, gilda radner mm-hmm. and jane Curtin and lorraine newman and then also watching a lot of foreign films and um french films and i was so in love with it and there was there was definitely when i look back on it this part of me that 
wanted to be a part of that. And I would write stories and do these mini monologues and impressions of family members for my sister constantly. <laughs> and, uh, and I wanted to be a part of that. But I thought that, and maybe not wrongfully so, looking at American television and film, particularly in the 80s and 90s, I thought you had to be from, from Hollywood from a family that's in Hollywood, or look like a model if you're a girl. I thought those were your options, and I didn't fit the bill on any of those. Well, three. I gotta <laughs> interrupt here because I couldn't believe this when I, you know, read it. But we know the way you look from Better Call Saul and the way you look today mm-hmm. out in the world. You're saying it was like majorly different at a certain point, right? What can you describe? When I first started acting, yes, um, I was. Well, I, I had taken an acting class. I had I think I had just enrolled and maybe it started my first year of college when and I looked pretty much like pretty much like me plus the, you know, the lovely freshman 10. <laughs> 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 and, um, but I was very unhealthy. I got to say I I ate horribly <laughs> and no one exercised. I did not grow up with a family that I don't and I don't know if that was just my family or suburbs of Virginia or the decade we're talking about, <laughs> but I, I grew up with, like, we all knew the one weird mom on the block who jogs. And isn't that weird? She jogs. And we'd look at her out the right. window. So, yeah, I came, I came into it pretty unhealthy. But then my father passed away during my, at the very end of my first year of college. And I went through, as you might guess, a mm-hmm. lot of searching and transformation and rebellion. Um, yes and no. He died of alcoholism. Ah. So... It wasn't like any of us were surprised mm-hmm. that the road ended that mm-hmm. way. But <laughs> I can't believe I'm talking about this. But as a child of an alcoholic, I think a lot of people would agree that you almost start to just think the end might come at any moment. So then you get inured to that. And so then in a way, it is a surprise when it's like, oh, my gosh, wow, it really happened. OK, right. so I did what I thought was so rebellious, but apparently a lot of people do this. I've, I later read, um, I chopped all my hair off. I had long, straight blonde hair, and I chopped it off and then buzz cut. It was crew cut, and then I dyed it jet black. Who was this? Was this like Sinead O'Connor? <laughs> well, I'm trying to think. I Tyler. don't know what I don't. <laughs> I don't know what I wasn't. I wasn't even like holding a magazine picture right. of someone I idolized. It just. I don't know. I look back. I was 18, and I think you feel limited in how how to express the mm-hmm. chaos that's happening. And so maybe changing your appearance dr- dramatically. I mean, cutting off really long blonde hair that I'd have for, had forever was fairly dramatic to me at the mm-hmm. time. And then I proceeded to eat and rarely leave bed <laughs> the bed yeah. for for that summer. And so I say all of that to say that I got very unhealthy and um, gained a lot of weight. So by the time I was telling my college teachers and and friends that I wanted to act for a living. I just was in love with acting the first time I took a class because it was the first time and they were teaching Lenny Raybuck, one of my favorite and most beloved mentors. She, her class, she was teaching practical aesthetics, the David Mamet um, Atlantic Theater kind of approach. It's the first time I heard about objectives and obstacles and given circumstance and what happened in my brain was you took the magic of storytelling and the fact that I loved the idea that someone's job was to tell grown adults stories and that we still, like children, will sit around waiting to be told a story and waiting to be taken somewhere from point A to point B. And then if you're good enough at the storytelling, 
you can take somebody anywhere on a black box stage with nothing. You can tell me that we're on Mars. Sci-fi, French films, film noir, dramatic things. I could put myself in someone else's footsteps for a beat and come out the other side thinking differently. And so that, when that magic met what I found out was actually a craft. Then that hand-eye coordination yeah. part of me that, that loves math. I mean, not, well, the math of the craft of acting, if that makes sense, to, mm -hmm. to, to break down a script. Yeah, how you do it. Yeah. yeah those, and, and, oh, you can apply yourself. It's not just magical fairy dust that some people are better at this than other people. It's work. It's something you can apply yourself to. It's something that's bigger than luck and more important than looks. It's, it's, a, it's a thing I can study. So when those came together, I immediately was hooked. And then I went through this period after my dad died that sort of altered my appearance. Well, let me ask you, though, that first acting class preceded your dad dying or it was preceded it okay so you were already heading in that direction but now, yes okay but telling people that I wanted to do this for a living because I had I went to George Mason near Washington DC because I actually thought I wanted to do exhibition curating and exhibition design and so I thought I would intern at the Corcoran or the Smithsonian or something like that looking for a way to like how am I going to financially make it yeah, as a painter yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then I just immediately fell in love with acting, and I just thought, I, I have to do this for life. I have to. I love thinking about what makes other people tick obsessively, and I'm <laughs> people watching all of it. And so anyway, the, the appearance thing just affected me in that. And listen, I look back and I look at those pictures, and I think we should be accepting women of all different mm -hmm, shapes and sizes, mm -hmm. and I think I was cute as a button, just a little bigger and a little more androgynous looking because of my hair and stuff like that. But uh, How did that affect the sorts of castings? I mean, so, so you're taking the acting classes. Mm -hmm. I guess, are you also in college productions and stuff while you're still at George Mason, or was that only afterwards? I was in a few, but not many. There are really, really great acting teachers and art teachers, actually, at George Mason University, um, primarily because a lot of them are adjunct. It's a commuter-type school, mm -hmm. so there's no coddling. <laughs> and mm -hmm. most of your teachers have a gallery show tonight mm -hmm. or are going on stage right, tonight. Right. And so there's a lot of pros and cons. Back to the goods yeah, and bad yeah. there, uh, of that. You need, to, you need to figure your shit out. Yeah. Do we curse yeah, on this one? <laughs> you need on. to figure your shit yeah. out. <laughs> and for whatever reason trying to remember they do a type of ensemble acting thing where the same group of kids moves up together mm -hmm. and for for whatever reason oh I think it was because I was coming to it late it wasn't my declared major by then I had for whatever reason I needed to make it a minor and not a major and so I sort of got left out a little bit of their yeah. their normal curriculum the way they do it and so I did a lot of independent studies and didn't end up in college productions because I was a little bit outside of that loop, even though I got the benefit of all their wonderful teachers. But I started going downtown and... Downtown D.C. Sorry, going into D.C., yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And at that time, you... Shoot, what was the city paper, mm -hmm. which is sort of like the Village Voice for for DC. Rest in peace. <laughs> but um, <laughs> oh, I loved the Village Voice. But um, yep. I was looking for community theater production, anything, and I started volunteering to. I would read stage directions for a new play in a church basement, anything, just because I felt acutely aware that I needed to figure out how to make this a profession that I could make a living from, and it felt to me that many people in the arts around me, not just my school, sort of 
either end up like my dad, relegating it to a hobby because you can't make it a profession, or sort of dreamy-eyed think that you're somehow just going to leave school and get hired professionally and forgetting to to bridge that gap in some way. So I kept trying to Mm -hmm. actually volunteer in professional settings instead of at my school. And I did get some thoughts about casting, back to your original question, (laughs) my apologies. But um, yeah, my appearance, I didn't think it was that different. And I gravitated towards theater because I started to go into D.C. Mm -hmm. and watch shows at, and if anybody out there has not seen theater in Washington, D.C., it is amazing. It is amazing. One of my greatest accomplishments to this day is that I'm an acting company member at Woolly Mammoth Theater. And they are they're phenomenal. And so is Arena Stage. And I used to work at uh, Studio Theater and Source Theater. They are often doing, especially Woolly Mammoth and to some degree Arena, doing productions that are taking bigger risks. Like um, we had Nikki Silver coming to do stuff and Doug Wright and Amy Friedman and Diana Sun and Paula Vogel was working on a piece at Arena. And Often the playwrights would actually work out new things and take even bigger risks because it is a professional, very literate theater audience there. And the Washington Post is reviewing you and it is a big deal. But they could sort of really jump without a net before taking that production to New York. And it didn't mean that the New York production was necessarily better or worse, which some people might think that about New York theater versus other places. It meant that we really like really worked workshops some of these characters and the lines and try to see how far can we push the audience and what's provocative versus shock and it was amazing. It's and amazing. That it's continued still- after you graduated. You were staying in yeah. that area doing those. I did theaters. theater for twelve years in DC. Well, and so I think you. <laughs> so my appearance. Sorry, my appearance early on. Yeah. I got slapped in the face to find out like that this this apparently this package doesn't work for all the roles. Now in theater, thank God it's a little more forgiving yeah, yeah. than on camera at that time. On camera's gotten a lot better now, but but what happened is they wouldn't let me <laughs> I didn't realize that no one was gonna let me play any ingenue roles. Uh, Did you want to? In some of them, yeah. yeah. In some plays, that was clearly the most interesting yeah. part to me. Not because they had the most lines or were the leads or anything mm-hmm. like that, but just they often were given the most to do or right. whatever at first. Mm-hmm. And I ended up actually being wrong, I think, because what my packaging appeared to people, and I also was very, I was always, I always had this voice, which mm-hmm. lower register is uh, odd to some people coming out of a young person. Call, I want to, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about like when that came along, because that's that's always been that way, and I've yeah. always been very forthright, and yeah. I make eye contact, right. and um, while I fight deep insecurities and self-esteem issues and always have and certainly was then, I still can hold my place in a room and I'm okay to take up space. I've always felt fine about that. And that juxtaposition with my appearance and my forthrightness mm. to people, they were like, you're a character actor. You're, just, you're, just, you're only allowed to play the character parts. Some pretty awful things were said to my face when I attempted to audition for things that were not the character part. <laughs> like, you know, oh, well, that role, we have to get somebody that is attractive to men uh, yeah. was one of the reasons that I was not allowed to read for one role. And yes, I have seen that person since then. <laughs> and yes, I did bring that story up at an awards ceremony because oh I'm awful. God. But um, <laughs> but what, it ended up being the greatest gift. I played all the strange friends and the people who have deep secrets and the people who are fighting addictions and the crazy friend who's in an asylum, like all these fantastic parts. 
And the reliance was deeply on, I need to make myself a better actor uh, somehow, some way, every single day, because apparently, apparently my looks are not going to carry me. <laughs> and Well, and so at what point did you and why did you then abandon that? It sounds like sort of uh, more butch, is that the word? Uh, I don't even know that it was butch. It just yeah. didn't look commercially like right. what we think ingenues look like. I was probably 40 pounds heavier, too, mm-hmm. which, again, not... <laughs> not horrible to look at or anything like that, but just wasn't fitting certain packages. It changed actually just because I started, I started getting work. I started professionally working while I was still in college. And even though it was non-union theater, but it was professional, Mm -hmm. I would say, as long as somebody's buying a ticket and my school didn't get it for me, that's professional (laughs) to me. (laughs) And um, I was so tired. I was doing school and, you know, a day job and then rehearsing. And I, I realized pretty quickly, like, wow, for every hour you're rehearsing, you can count on at least another hour at home that you should be working on your stuff and studying and um, tired. And part of it was skipping meals, Mm -hmm. thinking that that was a good way to lose weight, ridiculous, you know, and and, but then eating a pizza or a cheeseburger at two o'clock in the morning and going Mm -hmm. straight to bed and not exercising. And I was was just tired. I was so tired. And I thought, I got to get some energy. And I no, it sounds like crap, but I honestly started there. It's just like, I think I need to get healthier because I want to do this for a living. Mm-hmm. And and I got like eighth grade health books and <laughs> like relearned what a portion was. <laughs> it's not what Cheesecake Factory right. is putting on my plate. <laughs> and I did really small things. Right. Like the whole first year, I just told myself, oh, apparently I'm supposed to drink this much water. Right. I don't drink any water. Mm-hmm. I don't even drink a cup of water. That's weird. So all I did was add water, all the water you're supposed to drink, and then... And I started to feel a little bit better, and um, I also had a lot of anxiety and even the depression stuff after mm-hmm. my dad passing away. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I had parents, and my mom was great. Too. She was very supportive of me doing doing whatever. She still is. Mm-hmm. She there was no there was no blinking from my family about like what you're going to be an you actor. Need to get in this, yeah. No, it was more like well, whatever she says she's going to do, she's going to dig her heels in. So just let her go. And you're telling them at that, or you're telling her at that point that. Your dream is you're going to be a, or forget about dream, just I'm going to be a theater actress. It's not, screen was not in the equation for a while, right? I think I didn't, yeah, I I, I wanted to because I grew up, I didn't grow up going to theater. Right. We didn't, I think we had one field trip to go see Julius Caesar and it was not good. And uh, it's too bad. It's too bad right. because I, when I did a workshop with some youth at risk once, I was trying to tell them like, I swear to you, there's plays mm-hmm. that will affect you. Mm-hmm make you laugh, make you cry, make you think, make you uh, re-examine some things as much as any television show or movie that you've seen. You just need access yeah. to it. And DC does a lot of that pay what you can and free for you know students coming in on certain days and stuff like that for these for the newer contemporary yeah. theater. Not that the classics aren't great. They are. But, but I wanted to tell these kids there's even stuff that you wouldn't guess would speak to you. So I wanted to do on camera because I grew up watching film and television that I was obsessed with I guess you know what I'm not sure when I look back on it it's an interesting question because when I look back on it I'm guessing it was just another thing that I thought was just outside my Mm -hmm. reach at first acting seemed outside of my reach then getting on stage was and then and being on camera I think at that point and I all the time and at the time I was losing weight and getting healthier but also becoming a better actor with every job I did and so I started being offered a wider variety of parts but I still approach them the same way I did from the beginning. 
And then that became a casting issue. And, that, and it was in television as well that um, now people were like the opposite, thinking, well, okay, so she's a cute blonde, but she refuses to just be the girlfriend. Right. Like, I constantly <laughs> infuse everything with subtext of like, right. oh, no, no. What's There's a backstory? whole yeah. life going on here while I sit and smile at my husband. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and not everybody wants that in their story. Well, before I think any screen acting entered the picture, as you said, there were these many years of, of theater. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I have to ask you about, because you said it was in D.C., but it seems like from late 2001 to early 2002, there was also a little Broadway experience. Yes, I, w I acted in New York for three years as well before I came out to L.A. And I was an understudy to Julie Lund, who's fantastic, in Neil Simon's 45 Seconds from Broadway. That was his love letter to the Edison Theater. And I was her understudy, and I, and I got to go on, and you that did. was my Broadway debut. That's great. <laughs> How far ahead of going on did you know you were going to get to go on? Like, could you tell people, like, come see me because tonight's the night or whatever? Yeah, I think I had, like, two days notice because she got food poisoning, and I feel like they knew over the weekend mm -hmm. that I might be going on. I might be wrong. Maybe it was a Monday and mm -hmm. I went on Tuesday. I'm not sure. And, oh, my gosh, that cast was... I was extremely prepared, though, because Jerry Zachs was the director, and he insists that all understudies watch all rehearsals every day. You must be there for every hour, and you all must be in the building, not with a get this, pager, anybody remember those? <laughs> or cell phone down the block during performance. We all, an entire second cast lives in the basement during production, during- Just um, kind of hanging out. Yeah, and you're listening to the speaker because he uh, used to tell us if, and it was, it's awesome, By back then it felt like tyrannical and I was terrified, but it's it was amazing yeah. because first of all, it was a masterclass in acting watching these. It was David Margulies and Alex Corey and Louis Zorich and Louis Statlin, Bill Moore, the fabulous, amazing Marion Seldes. Oh, yeah. It was all Tony Award winners up mm -hmm. there rehearsing, so yeah. I was perfectly happy watching yeah, them. Yeah. Kevin Carroll, who's now a friend of mine and a, and a huge TV and film star himself, but... You had to be down there, and he would tell us, Jerry would say, if you hear on the speaker, on the PA system, that you hear somebody fall, I expect you to be able to complete their line um, without the audience knowing it. Obviously not possible, yeah, right, but that's right. how on edge we yeah, were supposed to yeah. be, thinking we might go on. But that must have felt pretty great to be, at that point, what could be better than being on Broadway? It was. It was amazing. Yeah. It was. And this was, we were previewing during 9-11 oh. <laughs> and I was living in Brooklyn at the time so it was a very weird time yeah. um, maybe that's why it didn't even go long it didn't go it yeah. didn't go along the the hardcore subscribers were still trying to prove that we're still going to the theater and we're still going to carry on but Times Square there was tumbleweeds going by and there yeah. was no, and there was an, and also the anthrax things started oh, right, right after 9-11 so then no one was on the subway and everyone was telling people don't go to large gathering places like mm -hmm. Times Square, don't ride public transportation, um, and we're doing all of that. Yeah. I think we resumed preview rehearsal maybe um, maybe only like a week after 9-11, mm -hmm. and I, I hadn't even... I hadn't even gotten out of my pajamas. I was terrified. Mm -hmm. And my boyfriend at the time in Brooklyn, we took turns leaving NPR on all night on their alert channel because you still didn't know, yeah. like, is this done? Or are, we, right. are they bombing? Are they going to continue bombing? What are we, what? Yeah. Nobody knew. Yeah. And um, and I watched the Twin Towers go down out my window. Oh, down. yeah. And then I remember getting the call, and I forget his name, my stage manager, saying, okay, t on tomorrow's rehearsal, and he was just very matter-of-fact, tomorrow's rehearsal, you know, 9 a.m., blah, 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 and then we're going to do a preview. 
And I was like, what? Yeah, yeah. Are you insane? Yeah. We're not rehearsing a play? Are you rehearsing a comedy? This is crap. Mm-hmm. No way. And I hung up the phone and I just thought it was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, the next morning, mm-hmm. I was, I just started crying because I realized how thankful I was to be told what to do, mm-hmm. to be told, put your pants on, put your shoes on, you're going outside so and you're actually getting, go forward. oh yeah, and you're getting on that L train and you're going to rehearsal. Wow. And I was so hot and there was like four people on the subway yeah. and everybody waves at each other. Hey, what's up? <laughs> it was oh weird. God. It was so weird. And then we got there and they, and Jerry did this beautiful speech about, God, I wish I could remember it's from someone. It's not Mark Twain. Hopefully somebody out there knows. You have to call me when you find out who this author is. But it has to do with when the world is at its worst and, and chaos is, is its greatest. That's when we need the arts the most. Wow. And everyone was thrilled to have any purpose yeah. at all in that moment. How long after that was it that you moved to L.A.? And why did you do that? I was doing a play at the wonderful, amazing Playwrights Horizons mm-hmm. and auditioned on a videotape for it was videotaped. Everybody would always say, like, if you want to do pilot season, if you ever want to do television, you have to, you have to go to L.A. for pilot season. And uh, obviously everybody knows, and I'm sure it's the same in your profession. It's the same in every – there's no always, never, anything. There's all, all different paths. Granted, <laughs> the likelihood of being seen in a casting room for a television show at that time was more likely if you were mm-hmm. physically here. Mm-hmm. But I was afraid. I was working – by that time I was working in plays blissfully a lot. Uh, I worked constantly and – Felt like I was always making myself better with every play, every scene. And I did want to do television and film, but, you know, back to what you asked a while ago, there was something about it that thought, like, well, they'll never accept me anyway. So what am I going to go there and get off a bus and be like, who needs a Caucasian blonde? You don't have enough of those, do you? Woo! Like, I just thought that's ludicrous. They're satiated. (laughs) They're fine with that. And... And when did you get to town? Well, I auditioned on this videotape, and then they wanted to do a studio test and a network test, which at the time I didn't know what those were. And mm-hmm. my agent and I were like, what? And um, so I went in. It was for this great role on I'm With Her, and it was to play Terry Polo's little sister. This is an ABC sitcom. Yeah. And Chris so- Henchy, Marco Panette, based on Chris Henchy's real life of dating when a regular guy tries to date a celebrity because he married Brooke Shields, <laughs> who's amazing and lovely, and I've met her as well. Yeah, and I— But that was literally the the— Early on, upon arriving out here, that was one of the first things? Or that was the thing? Oh, I got it, and then it got picked up, and they moved me here. I came with with a job, which is pretty much the best way to come to Yeah. (laughs) And that was, I think, basically lasted a season, 22 episodes. But, I mean, we should remind people that maybe it was not that— dissimilar to doing theater because you're doing it in front of a live audience, Correct. right? It was a multicam live audience show. So you rehearse you rehearse the whole week leading up to whatever your show night is. And then on show night, you sort of do this for anybody in theater. It looks just basically like tech rehearsal all day. And then, and then that night you do a live performance. And I did tell this one story. I think it was at the Geffen for a charity thing. But People were a little concerned, the producers, not in a crappy way, but people were trying to make sure that I was okay with anything that was not familiar to me, like A camera, B camera, C camera, mm-hmm. this, that, and the other. But a lot of the staging, the proscenium-style staging, I'm, I'm very used to. Yeah. And for some reason, though, they kept warning me about show night. Like, just so you know, there's going to be a live audience <laughs> out there. And so I guess a lot of people that had only done on-camera right. acting, like, get freaked, get freaked out. Yeah. I'm not really sure. I was like, right, yeah, yeah. And they were like, like all of those seats are going <laughs> to be people. And I was like, right. okay, yeah, I got it. Right. 
And then they told me, but here's the thing. When we do the live show, we're going to do it. It's almost like a play, right? We're going to do the whole thing. And then if there's stuff we have to work on, like a scene's not working, we actually let the audience go. You don't want to exhaust them. They'll go and then we'll stay and, and work it out if, if, if something needs to be done over and mm. over. And I thought, oh, okay. So what I, <laughs> so I thought, I thought they literally meant we're going to do a 30 minute play. Yeah. Without stopping. There will be no second takes of anything. If you need a second take, if you mess anything up, right. we're going to do it later tonight. <laughs> so <laughs> so what happened was in, um, so in, in, in sitcom staging, there's these sets. If you, if you, I'm sure you've seen a live one, but anybody at home listening that hasn't, it, they almost look like little shoebox stages. And the cameras are sliding. The three to four cameras, usually four, is sliding up and down and moving um, location to location. And so in the script, I think I'm in, yeah, I'm in the first scene and it's at home. And the second scene takes place in a cafe. I think it was a cafe that was the stages at the, that was the set that was at the end of the stage, the Mm -hmm. furthest away. And then it's a different day and I'm in a different costume. So I spend the entire week rehearsing, looking at that going, and I had a number of these that came up and I kept thinking, that's an insane quick change. And I was used to like, you know, at arena stage, you know, I had these fabulous dressers that like, they basically rip your clothes Mm -hmm. off that are Velcroed and and throw things on you and you run outside and it's run back on stage and it's amazing. But I didn't notice any dressers. There didn't seem, and we're not even doing like a rehearsal of that. (laughs) So I kept watching the other actors, David Sutcliffe, Danny Comden and Terry Polo, who are all very experienced television people. And Ted Wass was the director. And everyone's like, he's from Blossom. And I was like, forget that. He's from Soap. That's what I grew up watching him on. And I thought, I'm waiting till someone else asks about their quick change. I don't want to be, because I'm thinking the whole time I'm going to get right. fired. They're yeah. just going to realize, like, you know, she's good, but she cannot pull this right. off. So I don't, I don't want to say anything about anything. The entire <laughs> week, I never asked for anything. And right. um, I was like, somebody will ask eventually, right? Because that's not possible. Nobody ever asked. So then we went to, I went to my fitting and I, I asked the costume <laughs> designer if all of my things could be changed to Velcro and like <laughs> pull on like elastic things. And she's looking at me. Like, what is going on? Yeah. Like, yeah. are you, are you disabled? Like, what's, why can't you, like they gave me right. tennis shoes. And I was like, right. can you make them pull on though? Can you, can you change it to elastic laces? So they just pull on my jeans. I asked it like, can you change this to an elastic waistband? They were like, did she finally get why you, no, no I she... never told to this day. I've never gone back and told, but I mean, I had a button up thing right. and everything became slip on I, I, like animals. I was like a toddler. Wait, so they did actually they accommodate They changed all your... my stuff because I uh... think they were thinking, I don't know, maybe she's just a weird actress yeah, and yeah. I don't want to upset her or oh like maybe God. something's wrong with her. She has no dexterity. I don't know. So I get all my clothes changed to children's clothes. Oh, my God. <laughs> and you can still watch it. I'm wearing, like, sweatpants. That's here. hilarious. And I changed the blocking in the first scene. Like, I'm supposed to, like, be talking and then I exit. But I kept changing it to the line is actually on the exit. Because in my head, I was just trying to plan how many seconds I could do to this, this quick change. And then at Warner Brothers, your dressing rooms are above the stages. They're in the same building. They're not like a trailer somewhere. So they set your costume changes up there. Because for anybody who doesn't know out there, the the end of the story involves like, when you film a show, you stop 100,000 times. And then you go change clothes and you come back down and someone redoes your hair and makeup. So I took my, they set my costumes up there on show night and I took them down and I hid them behind all the sets. (laughs) And then we did the show and sure enough, we do the first take and of the, 
first scene, and I'm literally, you can see, if you can find the show, you can see I do my last line with just my head sticking out of a doorway because I am ripping Ready my clothes off. I am taking my clothes off while I'm speaking That's behind a door. And then I bolted down behind all the stages past, like, the ABC execs are back there and people's <laughs> invited guests, and I'm busting ass running, ripping my clothes off, go flying over a C-stand, bloody shin, all over oh the place. My I get God. my clothes back on. I'm sweating and he <laughs> and I go into the cafe and I'm ready. Yeah. I'm ready with my first line, but it's pitch black. <laughs> and I hear them yell cut. <laughs> and Ted Wallace is like, let's go again. Where's Ray? I'm like, fuck. Now you got it. Only then do I look from the audience side all the way down the um, sound stage and I see like, oh, wow, they're going to go again. Okay, yeah. And they, he's like, what are you wearing? Bloody shin, oh different costumes, God. sweating. <laughs> oh my like, God. I never told any of them. That's I think a great they just story. think I'm a lunatic. <laughs> I've never told anybody that worked there what that I was is doing. That's great. That's hilarious. Well, yeah, now with all the TV experience, you can really <laughs> laugh at that. Oh my God. Well, okay, so that show was 2003 to 2004. Then, unless I missed something, the next real like series regular was Whitney which is 2011 to 2013. So what was going on in the seven years between that? Was it's that a... so sad that on paper it looks like I... I'm not saying you didn't do anything. There's over. a lot of credits No, there. I did so no, many pilots. Okay, so that's what... That yeah. didn't make it, including um, a couple of shows I did. Singles Table, which mm-hmm. was brilliant. I loved that with um, John Show, Alicia Silverstone. Mm-hmm. That was Mike Schiff and Bill Martin. And that one, we did six episodes mm-hmm. for Fox. I want to say mm-hmm. Fox. Writer's strike happened and it didn't air. And what else? Head cases, Bill Chase's show. I did, we did six, six episodes of that. And I think they aired three of them. But yeah, I was actually continually. It was never like you were struggling to get a job or what? But is it demoralizing when you get invested in a new project and then it goes three episodes, if that? And, you know, like, I mean, it's not uncommon. A lot of people that we talk to here, but I mean, I would still think it beat you down after a while you think that this is going to be the one that takes it to the next level and then right well I would guest star on things that were on so but it did you do feel after a while like is all my work in a vacuum (laughs) like what's happening and then some of them you know you just love too I loved head cases I particularly loved Eva Adams Kevin Falls pilot that I think now would get on but at the time Mm. was just too odd it was an a remake of an Argentinian show and I was playing it's a misogynist man who has a curse put on him one day and wakes up as a woman, and he's a sports <laughs> agent. And so it was me playing Will Arnett trapped in my body. Oh, that's great. Um, that's funny. And it was so much fun. But yeah. they just didn't – they were <laughs> struggling. The network was like – because, again, this was this? a while ago. Yeah, they were like, what is the love interest mm-hmm. going to be? Like, either way, it's gay, right? No matter what, <laughs> she's with a man or a woman. And we were like, yes, isn't yeah. that fantastic? Yes. But they weren't ready <laughs> for it at yet. the time. Yeah. Um, and also, like, okay, so – I and that was my first lead and a titular lead on camera. And, mm. again, you know, back to how we started the whole thing, it was character-driven. Yeah. It was the first time that they figured out, like – oh, what's cool about her looking one way, but her personality being another way is is this. And so I, it was some of the first meetings I had where the network couldn't say, well, what if she was wearing lower cut shirts? or Because <laughs> my character does, had no idea how to dress herself. Right. And she's walking around in sweatpants. She doesn't, she uses the new, the rubber band from a newspaper to just get her hair out of her face. And 
I walked like a guy and so I fun. talked. It was so it was so much fun. And then also the thick of it I did with Michael McKean. That was Christopher Guest. That was the American and Mitchell Hurwitz based on the British in the loop and the thick of it. Armand Iannucci then eventually yeah, becomes deep. Oh, that right. one that one crushed me that that did not yes. go. I <laughs> want to go back for a second though to something you just said about you know notes from the network about lower cleavage <laughs> yeah. or because you were obviously quite active in this pre Me Too era of mm-hmm. network television where again there are very specific things that they're looking for sort of stock characters often and mm-hmm. not and things that you know, is this going to appeal to this demographic and we've got to get young males and we've got to do all this. Were you encountering bullshit like that? Not necessarily even like uh, reaching the level of, you know, stuff that's come out in the last... Sexual harassment? Yeah, but just like stuff that, again, maybe the word would be demoralizing, like they're not seeing past the surface here. Somewhat, yeah. I'm I'm super grateful that I can say that I... um, uh, A couple of things. I'm grateful for many things, but... I'm very proud of all the sitcoms I did. And I did a lot of sitcoms and some aired and some didn't, but I did a lot. I did 10 years of sitcoms and I think all of them were interesting, intelligent, great balances. And they were almost all broadcast networks and Mm -hmm. balancing wide demographic appeal and then having the smart jokes threaded between that Mm -hmm. only like little niches will laugh at. Super smart writers. Should we just quickly mention? So Whitney <laughs> is on NBC from 2011 to 2013. Yeah. Then Franklin and Bash was on TNT. I guess overlapping to some overlapping. extent. Overlapping. Yeah. I, I guest starred on that for six seasons, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, it, and they were, and that was Kevin Falls and Bill Chase, and they were lovely to me that I couldn't be a series regular with them because I was tied up yeah. in other shows and even some shows that didn't air, but the contracts never worked out. And I love working with them, and I'm very proud to say that I think they love working with me. Hopefully mm-hmm. they still do. So we, we, we constantly found a way to make that work. I did. Yeah. yeah. I did that overlapping with many shows. Yeah. But you're saying, so you had pretty much positive experience. I did. You know what, what I encountered more seemed like the people whose job it is to make network shows a, a business. I feel like some of those people were concerned and you'd catch wind of it, even if they tried to keep it behind the scenes. You could tell. You could tell that they were concerned with not just appearance of the female characters, but likability. And that that bummed me out because a part of me understood, well, it's a commercial business in the, and I understand that you need to not offend people on certain networks in certain time frames. <laughs> but at the same time, the the definition of likability and the parameters of that felt a lot tighter than it did for the male characters. So it wasn't so much being harassed or demoralized as much as feelings thwarted creatively sometimes when the writers, the producers and directors totally were were all for what I wanted to do. And I'm watching the male character next to me be allowed to push those limits, to do things that they seem like a no-brainer, but they're not. To be allowed to get angry in a scene and not let everyone know it's okay at the end. Mm-hmm. Most of the females end up having to, and believe me, now I watch um, sitcoms, there's all sorts of people that are breaking the rules I'm talking about, and for whatever reason are in positions where they're allowed to do that. So there's there are very smart women in sitcoms on right now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I did feel, I felt that pressure in a way that seemed that seemed gender-based, and then there were also times where I felt like, 
every now and then it's not so much what's said to you, it's that you're spoken to differently than your male counterpart. I, I sometimes felt like directions seemed yeah. more craft-based to the male and more, not all of my, but Ted Wass is me, I can listen. Mm-hmm. I've had far more amazing directors, mm-hmm. but just since we're having this discussion, yeah, yeah. The, there were times that I felt like the direction, and you can even see it in reviews sometimes, and, and they've gotten better, but theater reviews can sometimes, and uh, or actually any acting reviews, can sometimes tend towards the like, she has a magical quality. She's just, she's effusive and has that that certain thing. And then ethereal. they're describing them. Yeah, yeah, yeah ethereal, yeah. quirky, blah, blah, blah. And then the male character, the actor, they're describing his abilities. Mm-hmm. What brilliant choices, the skill involved with X, Y, Z. And then the woman comes on and they're just like, just gorgeous. Just, I mean, just that in unspeakable quality. What can you say? Yeah. And um, so sometimes the direction right. that I got over the years also felt imbalanced mm-hmm. in that way. So yeah, stuff, wow. stuff, stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> so all right, Whitney ends 2013. Franklin and Bash ends 2014, and it seems like right about that time, you get an audition for a show that I don't even know if it was yet titled. Better Call Saul. But this is a story that I want to kind of prompt you to tell because I think it will make every actor who is working hard and not yet really getting the chance to show fully what they can do feel that the daily struggle of that is worth it because the the story of your audition process Mm -hmm. is just kind of awesome, right? I mean, the way it all can you I mean, who did you audition for and what was your feedback? Sharon Bialy, Sherry Thomas, Russell Scott, Bialy Thomas mm-hmm. casting, and um, they like a number of casting directors, Allison Jones. There's a handful of casting directors here in LA who are so great at their job, but also took the time to be encouraging of me whether or not I got the job. Because for were, how many years had you been seeing them? For Bialy Thomas, I had auditioned. It had to have been 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I was working. And I do want to say, to uh, because someone else asked me about the story recently, and I want to say... I am aware that what I was going through and that struggle is not nearly as debilitating as an actor who's not getting any work. I'm simply saying for them, I never got cast. But I was, as we've discussed, I was in shows that, that went or didn't go or guest starring. So... I do understand that it's the few times in my life where I've had a dry spell where there was no outlet for my creativity. Is It's, it's horrible. And it's, as I said, debilitating. So I'm not saying it was that. But it was a situation where I wasn't aware, coming from theater, doing just as much drama as comedy, I was not aware that I would get pigeonholed as a sitcom actress when I got out here just because that was my first show. And then I got another sitcom. And you can only be so lucky that people are even thinking of you for anything. And a sitcom actress, though, means kind of like... Bubbly, fun, pretty, but not necessarily that deep. Right, which also, by the right. way, not fair. Right. You ask anybody to name their favorite shows and yeah. Cheers and All in the Family and Seinfeld and all these very character-rich shows that are very smart come up. So if you think sitcoms are dumb, then you watch dumb sitcoms. Right. I don't know what to tell you. Although it has smart changed maybe in the sense of the amount of depth that – like those shows that you just named were sort of pre-real mm. rise of cable and streaming and all this – where you know it feels like – the edgier character, the characters that can have more nuance Mm -hmm. are more nuances are now not necessarily on the broadcast networks. Doesn't mean that every actress who's on a broadcast sitcom or whatever Mm -hmm. is, is not also excellent, but it feels like 
there more are limited. Sm- there are smart people doing situational comedy. Yeah. One day at a time, blackish. Yeah, right, right. And then there's this, the rise of single cam ones too, which are not smarter but allow you creatively to go through. I think Life in Pieces yeah. was really really smart, and that was I, I think a hybrid. Maybe it was just single cam. So I hear you that I was naming the classic ones. And in some ways, maybe we took more risks then, you know? You go back and watch Mary Tyler Moore or even All in the Family. It's like, oh, my God, if you tried to pitch All in the Family right now, I know it was just on live, but... um, No, but we we had... How about we have a white old racist as your lead? (laughs) It would be like, what? (laughs) Yeah, we we just a couple weeks ago had Norman Lear on this podcast, and we were talking about the fact that, like, in some ways, Mm. they were... Yeah. edgier than you could be now but any, but so you're you though going into this audition though yeah. after 10 years had and by a lot of people been pigeonholed as yes. sitcom actress and people like sherry bialy thomas and the casting and uh, as i mentioned allison jones and a few others were calling me in for dramas and and really dark comedies instead of lighter fare and they did it once or twice, and then I guess liked what they saw and what I was bringing to stuff and continued to call me in for things that I think sometimes there just wasn't a chance in hell that I was going to get it. I even went in for some things for Sharon where I was aware, acutely aware, like on deadline, <laughs> that someone had already ha- has an offer for the role. Really? And sometimes they just want backups, you know, if the contract doesn't work out or whatever. And not only was I willing, but I was so excited that they kept believing in me for this very wide range of roles, really, really, really pushing against my limits of even things I'd done on stage. Um, Size of role, type of role, physical packaging of the role, calling you in for things where they only want names and I wasn't, but that, so what, we still want the, we just want this director to see your work or Mm -hmm. whatever. Not only were they calling me in for those, but I was so thrilled to do these little mini three-minute black box performances mm-hmm. <laughs> for mm-hmm. these three super supportive people who also gave me direction all the time. They, they do give direction and casting sessions, which is awesome, and ask you to do it different ways and make adjustments. But they would also tell me, don't change the way you attack roles, right? The right people that you're supposed to work with will come. Um, and it wasn't and it wasn't so much like the right, the perfect role will come for you. It, it, it was additionally letting me know that it's okay that I keep adding subtext to the girlfriend that's just standing there and making and trying to add other layers to things. It's okay that I take up space in a room and the people I should be working with that will make me a better actor and and a richer artist for it will come along. And if somebody in that room does not like the way I work, I shouldn't be with them anyway, and it'll be okay. And so, yeah, they told me later that by the time they sent them, because Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould were already scouting locations in Albuquerque when the casting session started for my role and tons of people were there in the hallway waiting um <laughs> it was a big it was huge yeah, it was huge search. um and I had <laughs> I had the pleasure of I operate better from an underdog position and so I was kind of like well obviously that'll just be an offer to any anybody that they want they'll right. get so I'm gonna do another three minute black box performance <laughs> for Sharon Bialy Sherry Thomas mm-hmm. and maybe they'll see it and there and I know Patrick Fabian has said the same thing about his audition we both kept thinking well do really really well do your bring your a game because who was in the room when you auditioned Aside, just just, just them them. and a video camera mm-hmm. and um I just thought, well, maybe if I do a good enough job, they'll call me in for like the waitress in episode seven or something. Mm -hmm. Patrick felt the same way. But I also just approached it the way I had been approaching my roles for those guys for 10 years, meaning casting, that you have to love 
and it, I know it sounds corny, but I say this to actors when I've coached them, you have to be in love with the actual work that breaking down that script, that stuff that I told you I started with, that I fell in love with as much as the magical result, you have to be in love with making up characters. You have to be in love with staying home when everybody goes out on Friday night and thinking about this scene over and over and over again and, and asking yourself to break it down, do your homework, and now push yourself to make the less obvious choice. What's a more interesting take on that line? What do you actually think the character's thinking about this? In this section where they don't speak at all, why don't they speak? What was that choice about? And if you're not in love with that part... You're always going to be in a situation where you're auditioning only for the result. And of course, I wanted the job and nerves will get a hold of you because of that. But it is a tremendous weapon against those nerves to fill up your head with the energy it takes to make a little three minute portrait of someone that you love. This little sketch, this little painting, it took up all the RAM space in my head that day so that I didn't have room to be nervous. Because what you even know about Kim at that point? Nothing. And yeah. by the way, they gave us fake sides, which happens a lot in auditions because they don't want the script to be floating right. around there and sides up and down the hallway and in a trash can mm-hmm. somewhere. So I knew nothing. I did not know she was a lawyer. It, she had a different name. And every callback I had was a new character mm-hmm. that also was not Kim. So, so how do you... How do you- <laughs> audition for a character when it's not even the character you're auditioning for well that's the thing you ask yourself first and i sweated that out (laughs) for a while going okay i'm gonna try to guess like what they actually want the character to be one day and it's like that's a ridiculous futile Mm -hmm. quest so what you need to do is you need to play the fake character they made up the best you can and it turns out every time this they had these characters they were qualities that they wanted to know that you were capable of should they arise in Kim. Mm-hmm. And you'd have to ask them how much they knew what she was going to be and where she was going to go beforehand. I don't I don't know. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just applied myself to the character that was that was there. And then I had a call back and applied myself to that character, which was new. Mm-hmm. And then by the, by the time we did the network test slash chemistry read, opposite then I was... Bob. Yeah, opposite Bob. And then I was given real sides. And it was the... It was the scene, I think it's episode three of season one, when he calls me at home, and you're still very unclear about what their relationship is, purposefully so, and I tell him, did you use the robot sex voice? And he's trying to ask me about the Kettleman case, and and it's not exactly kosher. So that was my um, final scene. That and I had the feedback you got was? Well, first of all, Vince and Peter did it at the Sony a lot with Tom Schnauz there and Melissa Bernstein and Mark Johnson, um, my EPs, and they gave you direction, which was so fun. A lot of network tests, most network tests I've done, and I've done, I've been lucky enough to do many of them at this point, it's so terrifying. You're going into sometimes the conference rooms with a bunch of couches or something, and you get one shot and if you mess up or you just had an off day or you got really nervous for some reason. Um, I mean, one audition, I ruined it just because I realized I, I was sweating from nerves so badly that the, the, the sweat stains <laughs> were so bad that I ended up having to do the whole audition like T-Rex because oh, I didn't want to lift my arms. It, yeah. And I'm sure they were like, what is wrong with her? <laughs> I did not get that part. Um, but it's just stuff like that where yeah. you're like, you could have easily missed the best person for yeah. this role. Not always the best actor. That's not. It's not even right, a meritocracy right. some days, but most days. <laughs> yep. But uh, somebody could have just been off. And instead, Vince and Peter, they taped it. And you got to do it as many times as you wanted to until you felt good about it. Although for someone like me, I 
eventually told them like we're gonna have to cut this out if we wait till i think it's a great take <laughs> we, we would not be filming right, right now right, right. <laughs> but it was it was a really supportive room and the casting directors what did they say they were lovely on my on my first auditions with them they said i did a great job and they later told me sharon later told me that when they showed these first tapes to vince and peter when they were narrowing down who was going to be in the final tests they said, we got to tell them, here's a tape of her, but also listen to her range. And they told, they were, she's like, we were able to speak about a body of your work for a decade that no one has ever seen. And I'm going to get teary now. I, cause when Sharon told me, I, I teared up just because on paper, every single one of those auditions was a failure because I didn't get the job, but Actually, they weren't. They were all successes because I, even when told you can't get the role, brought my A game, both because of my work ethic, but also because I love making up people <laughs> and, and doing it in front of people that are supportive, that want you to be great. Sharon and Sherry and Russell want you, and Vincent and Peter for that matter. The energy in the room was always, I bet this is going to be awesome. Let's go instead of dance, dag, now that dance, you know, with a gun at your feet. And so they told me, yeah, they, they, they said, uh, we were able to speak about your work ethic and your range, because they didn't totally know where Kim was going to go or what she might be one day, I guess, about work that, like I said, is, is technically all failures. So that in, now, in <laughs> hindsight, that all, it all contributed mattered. to the... It, it all, all mattered, and I think right. it's a great thing to know and to remember that Staying home that Friday night and being great every time, it does matter. The universe is hearing it. Somebody's seeing it and hearing it. And also, you embolden the part of you that loves the part of this job that you have control over. Every time you feed that part of you that does what you do because you simply love it and would do it alone for no money in your basement— Every time you feed that, it gets a little bigger than the part of you that feels like, I have no control over this. It's all up to everybody else. I have to wait for my big break. No one's helping me. I can't do this. You know, and I mean, you can make a you can make a web series this weekend on your phone and people are like, but, you know, the, it's so crowded out there. No one's ever going to see it. No, no, no. What I'm talking about is making something, make make work that you're that feeds you and I know it's a super hard business to make a living at and I know that I sit in a place of great gratitude for being where I am but I do think it's important to to love the work part of it because you can control that so you get the part mm -hmm. do you remember specifically just your reaction in that moment because just just for a second bawling to... I was bawling yeah yeah well it, I mean it, it a took call? a really long time after that network test, yeah. screen test. And I don't know the ins and outs. I know that it wasn't <laughs> to be sadistic and manipulative. <laughs> I think it had to do with sending the tapes to some network people that couldn't be in the room that day and the back and forth. I don't really know. Right. At any rate, it took a while. And I thought, I actually thought it took so long that I was like, this is, this is done. Yeah. Sometimes a callback can take a really long time to hear, but to have the screen test and not hear, I was like, and I knew they were beginning shooting. And I yeah. was like, come on. So I tried to push down how devastated I was because by that point, of course, the hope had arisen so in me. Close, like, oh my yeah. God, whatever. And yeah. yeah, only five people screen tested. Wow. And I was like, God damn it. And then Peter Gould started following me on Twitter and I freaked out. <laughs> and I went and told my fiance, I was like, you wouldn't do that if you weren't going to hire somebody, would you? Like, do you think it's a sign? He's like, hon, I don't know if we can be helpful, blah, blah. And right. then on my birthday, 
I think it was out on my actual birthday, mm-hmm. May 12th. Graham, my fiance, was taking me out to dinner and my agent called and, and manager and said that uh, I got the job and we were getting ready to walk into a restaurant in Venice and I almost collapsed on the sidewalk. I was just... Because I knew the level of storytelling that these guys do and I also knew the amount of character development that they write, encourage, and enable in an actor. And I just thought there there just there can't be a greater gift and I wasn't wrong. <laughs> well so on on the one level obviously as you're saying there's this great excitement and anticipation. On the other hand, were, was there any part of you that's as it sinks in thinking I'm joining a show that is almost on paper set up to fail, a spin-off right? of yeah. th- what some people think is the greatest show Agreed. ever. How can anything, <laughs> whatever it is, how can it live up to that? And are people just salivating, you know, does it, do you get flashes of Joey the from Friends, the spinoff, or all these ones where <laughs> it just any crashed? Any comment and bur- on anyone else's yes, sequels no, or no, no, There you go, right. <laughs> but, like, you know, I would think there's that as well. Oh, sure. There's a, ton, there's a gazillion things to be terrified, you know, and I'm I'm talking a good game on your podcast, and then I go home and cry <laughs> myself to sleep out of fear about everything every day. Yeah, no, I was I was scared for all all sorts of reasons, like am I actually going to be able to contribute? Like, okay, you wanted to be on this A team. So can you, are you going to hit? Like what's, what's happening? (laughs) Um, And then also the show itself. I mean, obviously it was set up to have backlash. Like, oh my God, there's going to be, even if we're great, there's going to be people that are just mad that we exist because you shouldn't have touched the original and blah, blah, blah. But a couple of things I thought, A, and Bob has said this as well, even though he was a character from Breaking Bad, if Vincent, Vincent Peter did not need the money or the notoriety. So we, you have to assume that people that smart and that talented, if they wanted to do it, they must have a story that they really want to tell. And I'm sure it's going to be great. What the audience decides to do with that or trends or backlash can't control. Yeah. I can't control any of that. And then I kind of had... In some ways, I felt less pressure that I was not one of the original characters. And I also didn't know, honestly, I didn't know at that point if uh, Kim was in it some, a little, just recurring. Well, yeah, because, I mean, at the beginning, it's not even clear what the nature of her relationship to Mm -mm. Jimmy is. And I don't know if you knew, because I know you're saying, you've said that you would get scripts not that far in advance of where the story is. No, you get them about... Three to five days before you start shooting them. So, so you know, we knew know at the, in the early episodes that there was some some history there, right? But they weren't, you know, making out. It wasn't clear right. that they it were. Wasn't. They weren't talking about, you know, this what the history was. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that was interesting. But I additionally now you've got to uproot your life for at least a chunk of the time and go to Albuquerque. Sure, four and a half to five months. Four and a half to five months. You're joining a group of people who have worked m- almost, I think, a large portion of the. People in front of and behind the camera have yes. worked together on Breaking Bad. Correct. They have history with each other. Was it encouraging or frightening to join that kind of a, a group of people that are already sort of familiar with each other in a place that's removed from everything else? Or, you know, because I'm thinking on the one hand that that's isolating enough to be with a group of people that know each other and you don't. And now on top of that, you're in the middle of nowhere. But on the other hand, what else is there to do but get to know each other and work with each other yeah yeah more the latter yeah. i think and as soon as i started getting the first couple of scripts i i i realized oh this is of the fabric that breaking bad was made but that is it is its own story right. i think it would have been much more terrifying if it just felt like breaking bad 
season seven or something. You know what I mean? Like it felt like its own thing. And so I felt some relief from that. And then the crew and the cast was immediately embracing of me and very excited. And there was never any, but there was never any vibe of you're the new person. Just try and catch up with what we're doing. It was more like we're making a totally new thing together. And the people that are doing origin stories because they are characters that existed in that they have a particular type of job to do. That's very interesting but they were equally excited and Bob being one of those people about like, you're a blank slate, right? Like what, who is this character? What is, what is this? And so I think people were extremely inviting from the beginning and me not knowing what that relationship was turned out to be some of the, (laughs) some of the coolest little gifts I had to start trying to make Kim. I'm like, who is this person? She is extremely specific about what she says. She says very little, Mm -hmm. She shows very little. So I started letting all of those things be clues to me. Um, We share a cigarette in that uh, first episode. He takes a cigarette out of my mouth and puts it in his. That was written into the script. And I thought, okay, well, that's a level of intimacy that's deep. You don't do that (laughs) unless you've known someone. I don't know. I was like, I don't know if they are dating, Mm -hmm. have been dating. but How long till you found out? It sort of grew over time. They said, you guys have a 10, they told us, they said, we think you guys have a 10 year deep history, each other's confidants, extreme close friendship. We're not sure what else it is or what else it used to be or what else it will be, but just play that. That's (laughs) scary. That's like, yeah, I would think because I don't know, maybe I, I would think you behave a little differently around someone who you have a past intimate relationship with than you do. You you do. But so I had to just take what's there and end up making this character that I'm so fond of now. I mean, he also said, we only have one line together and Jimmy says, um, couldn't you just, and I say, I, you know, I can't. Yeah. And he meant like help me upstairs right. during his Ned Beatty monologue. <laughs> so to me, I was like, okay, she has boundaries. Right. They know each right. other well enough. They finish each other's sentences right. and smoke the same cigarette, right. but she will cut him off in a heartbeat. Yes. <laughs> and then in the script, it said, she throws a cigarette away, walks away. There was no like, looks back with goo goo eyes. Thank right. God. Walks away and it says, without looking, writes the trash can that he kicked in the beginning of the episode and gets on the elevator. And I thought, okay, so he does this all the time and she cleans up his messes. Right. right. That's a great hint. Without being sentimental about it. And for me, that was a lot of information, actually. Another thing that I read, you know, was helpful, maybe kind of from the least expected place. You go to your costume fitting. I guess to some extent it tells you something about your character, but in this case it really did. Yeah, Jennifer Bryan is our amazing costume designer. And I went in and I had some ideas about the character at that point. And a lot of it was deductive math, working backwards. Like if this is who you are, what do you think makes you that way? If you're someone that's that careful about what you say, then you're probably somebody who keeps things in and what's happening there. And she, they told me, um, we think that she met Jimmy starting in the mailroom later in life and then worked her way up in a law firm very quickly. I was like, okay, so to me, this person seems very concerned with trying to get a single finger in the crag of middle class to somehow pull yourself up and don't let go for fear of God, just, you know, like hang on. And I was thinking that, and I go into the costume fitting and, Jennifer Bryan, the first thing she says, she goes, so I have your suits here. She's like, you know, we're all going to like learn and grow with Kim and who she is together. She's like, it's not like I've been told a bunch of stuff that you don't know. But she's like, but there's just something about her that to me feels like 
she still has to shop at Marshall's for separates. She can't afford the designer suit yet, but she's trying to blend in and make it in this world that's a little bit outside of her reach. And I totally just teared. I sound like a crybaby on this podcast, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, I just started tearing up because I thought, oh my god, oh, okay, so we're actually going to have costume and then makeup and hair was the same. These discussions that are deeply character-based and it's something that I feel very protective about Kim o- over the journey of the five seasons now and Jennifer Bryan feels the same that the women I grew up with that were desperate to pull themselves up out of some situation by being at least lower middle class to middle class, that fear to not backslide and the energy it takes, especially as a woman in the shows in 2002, Albuquerque in a law office, which is male dominated, you don't change your purse. You don't change your jewelry. On that's a how. Basis, right. right. No, yeah. that's how we yeah. came about these decisions yeah. that, like, she doesn't even change her jewelry. Right. And then it turned into, and she doesn't change her hairstyle. She doesn't have time for that. And so, yeah, my clothes, my suits, especially season one and season two, and they've grown. They've now, she's evolved a little bit and right. she has money from Mesa Verde and all this other stuff. But they would look like a navy blue suit, but they would actually be blue and black. And they were repeats. It was like two skirts yeah. and one jacket, like on rotation. Yeah, it was yeah. great. It was all part of it. <laughs> And, you know, some people look at these two characters who are at the center of the show and they say, what could they possibly have to do with each other? They're so different. But the reality, I want to just read back a couple of quotes and then ask for a reaction. But you've said that in season one, quote, I would just look at his loafers and know instantly why Kim loves Jimmy. He's fucking holding it together with a paper clip. That's true. Close quote. And then she's also this outsider who in her own way is barely holding it together. You had said, quote, Kim is an incredibly tightly wound character who is buttoned down and keeping it together with incredible willpower. Close quote. Basically, there are these core similarities, even if she maybe can hide it a little better than mm-hmm. him, mm-hmm. that does answer that question of why would these two people ever want to have anything to do with each other in the first place, which is pretty important. But one of the things I want to ask about you and Bob, because you have so many of these scenes together, which are often long takes with long back and forths. Do you guys work together learning the dialogue? Are you allowed to veer from it and improvise? I know he has this whole history in improv. A part of me thinks you hire Bob Odenkirk, you want to make use of that skill set, and therefore now you're going to be doing it with them that you can dance a little bit, but I'm not sure. So just learning and executing these long back and forths. Right. Yeah, no, um, we don't improv. The scripts are done to the letter. Bob has said that he actually finds it to be this great relief, that it's not his job. He's not writing the show. And it's some of the best writing he's ever seen. So he's thrilled to Mm -hmm. be doing that. I think they've told him maybe a handful of times or less, like when he's doing bingo at the senior citizen's (laughs) home and he's supposed to be working the crowd. I think they told him he could add a joke or two if he wanted to. And sometimes early on when you get your first draft of the script, you can ask about if Bob wanted to add a line or something. But I don't even think he does it that Mm -hmm. much. No, we do them to the letter. And so in order to have the freedom to explore these four, eight, ten page, just two people talking scenes that gloriously do not have a obvious arc. They're not, oh, so it's two people talking and then they start flirting and then that thing comes up and they get in a huge argument and then it's done. It's this twisty tale that I find so accessible and so authentic about the way we talk to people that we've known very well. Yeah. We'll rehearse the lines ad nauseum over and over and over and over and over. Everyone in the cast does because you don't want to use your takes about lines. You want to use all of the time we're given to perform to explore 
especially with like the Jimmy and Kim characters and Bob and I love we've had these fantastic blow up argument scenes, yeah. but we also love the really quiet ones because they are in some ways more challenging and it starts to be about there's what you say, but when you are with a partner for that long, it is so much about what you don't say and also what you say between the lines. And the slightest, when we were doing that bathroom scene, say the bathroom, yeah. if one of us looked away when we said the line, it made the other one in character. I mean, you immediately perk up going, why can't you look at me when you right. say that? And, the, and that alters the way you say your next thing. Um, does it hurt more that somebody can't look at you? Or are they lying? Is it suspicious? What is it? Or to get close to someone or to act like you might get up and leave. And all of those tiny things start to matter as much as the lines in performance. You've got to know them forwards and backwards in yeah. order to do that. <laughs> and I think you've said, though, that it's sort of your favorite moments are the ones where it's just the two of them together, whether it's the nail salon or the parking garage or whatever, because when else do we ever see them actually, either of them, let their guard down and be their actual authentic yeah. selves? They're the only people that they would do that in front of. And then I guess as they we get in— They both wear masks of a sort right. in public, and, and they don't with each other. And then you get to season four, and as they're growing apart, who does she have to be honest in front of except the audience? Yeah, and I've, I've said that last season, season four, Kim believes it's out of grief, his grieving, that he is just becoming further and further distant, and his history of the awful relationship with Chuck. Yeah. She's increasingly alone, and you're right, she's without the even one person to let her guard down in front of, and it did feel like the audience became her closest confidant. They are frequently in season four, even in that wonderful scene by Tom Schnauz that Michelle McLaren directed in episode two where Kim lets Hamlin have it mm -hmm. over the state. In that instance, I am talking. I'm not being silent. But I still was like, the audience is the only person in the room that actually knows what all of this is about mm -hmm. and why I'm losing it right. on him. And he's taking the brunt of years yeah. of her issues with Chuck and what Chuck did to Jimmy and the injustice and the unfairness of so many things in the world and her coming up against the fact that I think Kim desperately, for whatever she came from, I think she thought legal and illegal would be the same as good and bad and moral and immoral, and they are not turning out to be right. at all. And it's deeply distressing to her that she cannot make order out of that. And, and this then, is why she does her public yeah, defender. And yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that is another reason why she's with Jimmy. In the beginning, people thought that that was more odd than they do now. But I thought, well, the pillars of justice in her life, mm -hmm. the Hamlins and the Chucks, are the most duplicitous right. and lie to her face and squish her down and don't give her promotions and aren't fair and aren't ethical and are not moral and are terrible people. <laughs> I mean, Hamlin didn't turn out to be terrible, right. but she thought he was at one time. Right. Uh, Chuck is a terrible yeah, person. Terrible. I love Michael McKean. Yes. And I know he will. I know he, <laughs> he, he had to it. play him right, as though right. Chuck is right. right. But Jimmy, who's supposedly a con man, totally upfront and honest mm -hmm. totally tells her so. yeah and then you know some of that eroded last season and i think that's when we saw kim yes. get blindsided well so season four is the one that we've most recently seen and you know as we move towards the end here i've got to ask you about a few of them you anticipated the first one season four episode two where you're confronting howard about this yeah. treatment of jimmy just i'm gonna hit a few of these so just maybe a sentence or two about each just what don't let me limit you, but I'm just saying, like, I want to hit a few of these, and let's start with that one. Just okay. what it was like to prep for it, to do it, whatever stands out as you think about it. I love that scene. I love Patrick Fabian, Michelle McLaren, mm -hmm. and Tom Schnauz. It was a great scene, and Michelle and I worked on it 
coming from a place of what did Kim intend to say versus what took over when she started to try to tell him something. I think she meant to confront him. I do not think she meant to do what she did. Mm-hmm. So we approached that scene from one of your most basic acting things always, which is it's more, it's more interesting to play against. So if you take bile coming up in your throat, and for me, I made it about that paper. As soon as she got that paper, she felt bile rising in her throat. How long can you keep it down? And it makes you breathe differently and it makes you swallow differently and it makes you very intentional when you are trying desperately. And we've all been there where you're like, do not let me cry right now because I'll lose all my power. (laughs) Don't let me barf. I don't want to scream. I don't think she likes giving up control. Mm -hmm. And so the push it down, push it down, push it down ended up making my body literally vibrate through it. And I'm never totally happy with my work, but I was happy with the response that fans felt like it was a tremendous amount of pain going on in oh, that in that scene again sticking with these are all season four so episode eight kim helps jimmy to get huel off joining him in a con of <laughs> course and then at the end when we think she might tell him off for having made her do this yeah. instead kisses him and says let's do it again <laughs> right so now it's like past the point of no return right yeah the scripts are page turners. I didn't see that coming, but they're just so smart on the show because it never feels like a stunt. It doesn't feel like, oh, you're making me do something you never expected just to make me do something you never expected. It's more like, oh, right, that's always been there. Oh, right. <laughs> and, you, and even you yourself didn't necessarily know it. Exactly, exactly. But if you go backwards, you're like, okay, yeah, there you was flex. Back, okay. yeah. Episode nine of season four, this one I think is the, this takes the cake, the rooftop scene mm-hmm. directed by Vince Gilligan and basically written by Jen Hutchinson, written by Jen Hutchinson mm-hmm. and Jimmy and Kim both basically lay out all of their grievances, basically say everything that's been pent up yeah. and you wonder if this is a breaking point. Right. Yeah. They do such a great job on the show, the writers of frequently if not always making arguments where you can see both sides as the audience and Bob and I obviously had to go to a place and if he was here right now he would argue to the death that (laughs) Jimmy is actually completely the only person who's right in that scene and I felt the opposite as we should (laughs) that she's that he's saying you don't support me enough and she's saying I give up everything for I yeah. give anytime He's you need me I'm like, there. It's the it's the office. You right. are shitting on me right. by refusing to slum it to have an office with me and she's saying I do every, everything, everything else. else. Yeah. How could it possibly be about this office? But what I do understand and I do like and it starts in the diner scene before that rooftop right after the scam mm-hmm. is that I like it when they do let you see Kim is not a martyr nor a saint. And it isn't just about like he infected her and taints her. It is stuff that's in her. There is a need for control and ambition and to be the crusader and the hero that is flawed in its obsessiveness. Mm -hmm. And and when she's saying like we only use our powers for good and he's like, "Uh, how is that? How is anybody deciding which? So that con was good or this one? And she shuts him down. We're not talking about it. And in the rooftop, her argument is a sound argument, except for the fact that if your partner tells you that every time you bring milk cartons home, it causes them intense pain. The conversation about why that's ridiculous is not the whole picture. And anybody who's in a relationship knows that, like, 
you still have to address the fact that they said it causes them pain and what are can we talk about that and what is actually going on and she refuses to she refuses to acknowledge it because i don't think she wants to answer that question either <laughs> and at the end of it he feels that maybe for the first time she lets him see that i don't know if loser is too strong a word but i mean jimmy you're always down right that was a hard line that's that was a hard kind of like got to be shiving him yeah. yeah we played it a couple of different ways and Vince is such a great, great director. In the end, he said, no, I think she means... Because I was wondering, like, is she saying this to hurt him or does she believe it? Mm-hmm. Or is it something in between? What it is instead for me in that moment is it's just simply the truth. If you're going to tell me the excuse for your bad behavior is because you had a shitty day, then we have to do something about the fact that you seem to continue to have shitty days every single day. <laughs> Otherwise your yeah. behavior is going to stay the same. Right. And I think that's what she's saying in the moment is, is what you're blaming this on your whole life of being stepped on. You have to make some decisions about that because yeah, you're right. You do keep getting stepped on. So what do you want to do about it? Right Yeah. Fourth of the four that I'm going to ask about season four is episode 10. The last time we saw Kim on screen, this whole sequence of Jimmy at his reinstatement appeal and making such a convincing plea. And then with Kim afterwards revealing that he was acting. And as she processes both sets of information, the the contrast seems to sort of rock her to the core, which is the last thing that we see in the season as we now have to wait for season five. So just playing that there's a lot of ways you could have played the way she responds to this. Yeah. Yeah. And she's mostly silent, which I, I love. I went and rewatched <laughs> it this morning just to be like really up on it. And even so you're in whatever the room is where he's making his reinstatement plea. Mm-hmm. And again, you're not, as you say, you're not saying anything, but even like you're, I don't know if it's swallowing or, or gasping, but like your neck like bulges when he says you start to believe what he's saying and so therefore if it has that effect on you when you believe it you then have to have the counter right when you realize it was bullshit yeah yeah it was a very complex series of scenes adam bernstein directed that tom and peter wrote it and i felt like i needed to leave space when he's doing the reinstatement hearing to be surprised by obviously she's surprised that he's changing the game plan and at first she's very worried about that because she she orchestrated the yeah. majority of how she was going to get him reinstated. Talk about and, Chuck. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, buying the, the library in Chuck's name right. and fake crying at the cemetery. Right. I think that Kim's constantly trying to justify and compartmentalize the scams she will be a part of. And they're a little Robin Hood complexy <laughs> about doing the right thing. And in this case, I think she believes he absolutely does deserve to practice law. And therefore, the tiny notion of whether or not they think you sincere is neither here nor there. And so the means to the end, let's it's a wash. But mm-hmm. dangerous thinking, in my opinion. <laughs> but um, so when he changes the plan, I think she's very worried. But then when she thinks he's being sincere, I left space for myself as an actor in that moment to let Kim be surprised by why she has an emotional reaction to that. And I think it has to do with how long she's been missing having a partner that was emotionally available and present and as you said before somebody that to talk to and I think she wasn't aware how much she misses that kernel of Jimmy until she sees it and just relief for your partner that like oh my gosh maybe you can heal now if you'll like let it go and to then (laughs) to then shift to the hallway and they did such Adam staged it perfectly that Jimmy does not see me cry behind him 
nor is he facing me for the beginning of the scene once we're out in the hallway because he does not see my reaction shift when he starts saying, like, did you see that idiot in there who shed a tear and all this? And again, the audience is the only confidant I have in that room. They know how crushing that would be, um, how embarrassing it is for your instincts and your emotions to be wrong. There's so many things going on there of, oh, my God, who is this person? And then also to be the sucker to be the person that you scammed me and you don't even, but he doesn't know it. So she's rendered speechless for a million reasons that it's like, well, how do I explain how you just hurt me? How do I even explain how you just hurt me? And by the end of it, <laughs> Jimmy is gone. That's Saul Goodman. Yeah. So that's, I guess, where we've left things. Yeah. And they, and they do that wonderful pullback on the yeah. camera that Marshall Adams did that leaves her alone on an island, which... It's more alone than she's even felt for the whole rest of the season. And to a lesser extent, I kept thinking about those times in our lives when someone that you care about deeply wants to join an activity or join a club that is without you. And you want to be happy for that. Like, they seem like they really found out what's, you know, going to make their life great. But you're thinking, I don't know. Do I go to that club? Am I going to be a member in that club? Or like, are you... Where are you going? Do I fit in that story? Well, and so looking ahead here, I mean, it's not totally official, I guess, yet about how much more Better Call Saul we're going to have. I think there's been one suggestion from Giancarlo Esposito that we'll get the fifth and a sixth or whatever, but Mm -hmm. that there might be some symmetry in the number of episodes between Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. But one question that's always been here, we assume, because it leads into Breaking Bad, that we know where... Jimmy ends up. We know where Mike ends up and a few others of these bad guys who come in and out. Gus Fring. Gus Fring, Mm -hmm. yeah. We don't know about Kim if she even exists in the Breaking Bad universe. And so I guess my question is as we look ahead to the, whether it's one or two more seasons of Better Call Saul, I mean, do you personally already know where Kim ends up? No. I just read the script six and I don't know what happens in seven. (laughs) <laughs> wow. So I don't know. We don't, we, they, they don't do that. Nobody's coming with her. Like, no. mm. Yeah. And then again, along those lines, it really, I mean, it seems like there's only so many. I can't even tell you if I'm in six or seven. I'm just yeah, <laughs> reading yeah. them. I'm not yeah. allowed to. Yeah. But, um... but I mean, okay. So, but in the longer term, in terms of as this eventually feeds into Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. you're either dead <laughs> or you're alive and with Jimmy. Mm-hmm. but we haven't seen you because we don't know much about Jimmy or now Saul's home life right. or you're not, you're alive and you're or not alive with and not with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Correct. So in your own view, what would be the best and worst case scenario knowing your character? <laughs> What's infinitely interesting is that all three of those could be considered a tragedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've kind of given up on guessing or even hoping. The good thing is that the one guarantee is in Peter Gold and Vince Gilligan and our whole writing staff's hands. They haven't disappointed me for one second yet of making the perfect choices for Kim to just keep evolving and keep growing. And she is not, talk about, you know, going from point A to point B. Kim's not the same character as she was when we first matter and what was there before that and what what's coming up that was always there versus what's now happening in real time and is new does she affect jimmy or does jimmy affect her or do they affect each other somebody asked me once too like would jimmy become saul and kim end up wherever kim's going to end up Mm -hmm. if they had never met 
what is Beautiful Creatures, <laughs> where it's the combination of the right. two of you, right. and what is Independent Paths that couldn't have been altered anyway. Um, yes, and I, Nobody I, can ever know in any way. Right, if, if, you can't. Yeah. But I think, I think that innate versus innate and destiny versus free will are questions they play with a lot on the show. And yeah, I'm sorry they don't have a specific answer other than no, like that's... I've become a little more at peace with... If you're going to die on a show, it might as well be this one because it's going to be spectacular. If she's going to stay, that's so complex. And I can't possibly figure out how you would write that. But thank God that's not my job. (laughs) And if she's going to go, it's if she's alive, but she leaves. What is that about? And still, what will she become? Like you wonder if he destroys her or sets her free, basically, because. Or does she destroy herself or herself? Yeah. Or set herself free. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> or does she destroy him? Right. Well, we see that he's got his issues in Breaking Bad. So. I mean, that's a sh- yeah. that's yeah. yeah that, Saul Goodman is, yeah. <laughs> is uh, a man a man with some damage. Yes. yes. <laughs> Last two. This has been quite an interesting year. I don't know chronologically when things were shot, but beyond Better Call Saul, we saw you as Michelle, who is the Amy of Hugh Laurie's presidential candidate, <laughs> yeah. Tom James, on Veep, the last yeah. season of Veep, which is great as well. Fantastic season. Terrific, terrific. We saw you as a woman fending off men who have gone nuts in the aftermath of a meteor shower in <laughs> the Not All Men episode of the Twilight Zone reboot on CBS All Access. And Jeanette, the trashy cousin of Patricia Arquette's character on Hulu's The Act, a limited series that is going over very well as well. So how did this all happen in one year and any other? These were all over the hiatus. Yes, I also did an independent film written and directed by Christopher Winterbauer called Worm, W-Y-R-M. That was the feature length film based on his extremely well-received short from Sundance. And it's so beautiful and funny and strange and interesting and unique. And I loved that. And then I went to Cape Town, South Africa to film the sequel to Inside Man. I did Inside Man oh, too. With, who's the director? It's still Spike Lee's property, but yeah. um, MJ Bassett directed okay. it. And it is Universal 1440 for Netflix. Okay. Amil Amin and Roxanne McKee are the other That's two leads in it. And they're year. fantastic. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was great. That's still packing a lot of stuff in. It was a lot of variety and genre and tone, too, which was fun. Yes. All right, last question. Just sort of looking ahead, one thing that has got to be nice is that I feel like your performance on Better Call Saul has gotten more appreciation for this season than maybe, not that it wasn't appreciated for the earlier three, but like my sense is they've stepped up and hmm. recognized it more this season. And it's interesting because speaking of parallels with Breaking Bad, it wasn't until the fourth season of Breaking Bad that Anna Gunn really started to get not only an Emmy nomination, but was actually sort of getting that same kind of, uh, wow, she's we, we need to pay more attention. Oh, yeah. interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so I guess I just wonder. I thought she was brilliant from day yeah, one. Yeah, day one. Yeah. <laughs> but she took a lot of shit, I remember, from that character. And yeah. anyway, just this particular moment in time for the where you are in the show and the career and all of it, big picture, any thoughts? Of, <laughs> of that kind of yeah. attention? Well, not about the attention, just like that this is where this whole thing that we've been talking about for this conversation has led. Are, you know, are, How do you feel about this moment? Really grateful. I mean, there's also, what, 400 shows on the air now? Yeah. So... You could be doing the best work of your life and no one yeah. knows what channel it's on. There's, I mean, the, you can get lost pretty easily. So I feel incredibly fortunate that Vince and Peter's names and people wanting to follow whatever they make and then the mothership Breaking Bad being one of the best shows of all time was our launch pad. There's no 
doubting the fortune that we gain from that because people bother to watch. So we're not in a vacuum. And so I don't forget that. And I know that there's great work on that struggles to have eyeballs on it. So we're very lucky to have that. And then beyond that, I just feel, I guess, even more, more and more gratitude. Season four was challenging. It was really challenging in the way that I hoped the craft of acting was going to be when I very first started. It makes me dig deep and it makes me have to really test myself and to get better. And then I get to work with people like Bob Odenkirk and Patrick Fabian and the whole rest of my cast. They're just generous and genuine. And yeah, I don't know what to express other than gratitude. When people start talking about like, oh, she deserves critical acclaim. She deserves awards. It's nice. I'd be lying if I didn't say that like it feels nice after doing this for 25 years. Yeah, it feels amazing, but it's also a dangerous thing to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to feel hopeful. <laughs> Or to think like, oh, was I crap when I wasn't being noticed? Um, <laughs> yeah, there is all the, that, it's all a wild yeah. card. In a but way, you know, but. I mean, I'm being challenged to be better and better, make myself a better and better actor. And then I'm being given tools that are these scripts. So it kind of doesn't get better. And so if the result of that really is grabbing some people and people are so responsive to my character. People want to talk about my character like she's a real human being all right, the time. Right. And that, I got to tell you, that's an amazing experience. Great. Well, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Okay, thanks for having me. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's series regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.